Mark chapter 16. Now, before we get to verse 9, we have to address a topic. We have to address a topic that, to be very honest with you, I was a little hesitant to spend any time uh, looking at. Some people would say, well, we've already finished the gospel of Mark. Some of you will note that in your Bible, the translators have actually told you that the gospel of Mark technically ends with verse 8 anyway, and that what we would be doing this morning would be frivolous. I talked to one pastor friend of mine that said, you shouldn't even spend any time addressing the controversy over the last 12 verses of the gospel of Mark because most people don't care. I disagree. I think especially since most of our Bibles tell us that the last 12 verses aren't authentic, if we're going to spend time looking at them, we should at least establish the case that these 12 verses should be in the Gospel of Mark. If you have a New King James Version, some of your versions will footnote that verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the NU text as not original. They lack in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all manuscripts of Mark contain them. If you are reading from the American Standard Version, you will see a footnote that says the two oldest Greek manuscripts and some other authorities omit verse 9 to the end. Some other authorities have a different ending to the gospel altogether. The NIV, the nearly inspired version, it footnotes this passage by saying that the two most reliable early manuscripts do not have Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. The ESV, I love this, they, they, really, they really help you out by wrapping your brain around what's happening here. The ESV states that Mark 16, verse 9, that some manuscripts end the book with Mark 16, verse 8, while others include verses 9 through 20, immediately after verse 8. Thank you for that, ESV, that verses 9 through 20 would follow verse 8. You see, a lot of our translations, they tell us that there is a problem in regards to the last 12 verses of Mark, that there's some question concerning them. Almost all of our translations have that little nugget of information without actually providing any kind of further study, like no more information so that we can look into this for ourselves. Now, before we address the issue in depth, you should first be introduced to an idea known as the science of textual criticism. Formal definition of the science of textual criticism involves the ascertainment of the true form of a literary work as originally composed and written down by its author. In regards to the Bible and the science of textual criticism. It is therefore the field of inquiry that seeks to ascertain as to the original state of the New Testament text. I don't know if you know this, but the reality is that we have absolutely zero copies of the original autographs of anything in the New Testament or the Old Testament. The original autographs, like the copy that has Mark's actual signature at the end of it, we don't have those in our possession. Actually, we only have copies of the original, or in many cases, copies of the copies. And sadly, this reality has led some to falsely conclude that the original reading of the New Testament document itself 
cannot be determined, and therefore isn't trustworthy. But understand, this is not a unique thing to just the New Testament. Any work of antiquity, anything written in years past, we don't have original copies of much of anything. And thus we have this whole field of inquiry that seeks to ascertain as to the original autograph by comparing copies. You see, the task of textual critics is important because in examining textual variants among the copies of the manuscripts we have in our possession, scholars are able to reconstruct, and in often cases with great accuracy, the original reading of the text. So we take the copies that we have, the earliest copies, the better, closer to the original autograph. And we take them and we begin to compare them and we begin to contrast them. And then the process of doing this uh, from a textual uh, criticism, we can begin to reconstruct the original reading. Now understand something up front, and this is why a lot of pastors don't dig into this particular topic, because I don't want you at any point to feel as though your Bible is not trustworthy. Actually, we're gonna look at this for the contrary, so that you can have more confidence that this book is as it was originally written. You see, textual critics have been successful in demonstrating that currently circulating New Testaments, the one you have in your hand or your iPhone, do not differ substantially from the original in almost any way. The world's foremost textual critics have confirmed that when all textual evidence is considered, though passages like the last 12 verses of Mark still do exist and remain in question, the vast majority of discordant readings have been settled. One scholar stated, through the science of textual criticism, one is brought to the firm conviction that we have in our possession the New Testament as God intended. Sir Frederick Kenyon, the longtime director, principal librarian at the British Museum, he stated both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. F.F. F. Bruce, longtime Rylands professor of biblical criticism at the University of Manchester, England, remarked that variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historical fact or of Christian faith or practice. He's basically saying that the passages that we debate and discuss and we look at aren't actually really important passages. They don't contain real deep theologically significant uh, evidence or historical claims. We're more of just kind of debating over A's and does and verses here or there in order to develop a full understanding. J.W. McCarvey, who was declared by the London Times as the ripest Bible scholar on earth, I love that, the ripest Bible scholar on earth. He wrote that all the authority and value possessed by these books, when they were first written, belong to them still. Eminent textual critics, Westcott and Hort, kind of put the entire matter into perspective. When they said that the words, in our opinion, that are still in doubt can hardly amount to more than a thousandth part of the whole 
of the New Testament. And so though we run across verses like what we find here at the close of Mark's gospel, understand that in the entirety, in the general scope of the New Testament, the verses that we debate and look at are very, 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 very small, a thousandth part of the New Testament as a whole. Now, the two arguments about these 12 verses. Well, there's two, two arguments for these verses not being included in your Bible. First, there is the external evidence. You see, they state that the two earliest Greek translations, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, both dating somewhere between 350 and 370 AD, which by the way is very, very, very early, these two Greek manuscripts they actually exclude the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel. And because they're very early and they're like the most reliable or they claim to be the most reliable text because they exclude the 12 verses, then we should exclude the 12 verses. Every footnote we referenced, when they're referencing the two oldest Greek manuscripts, they're referencing the Sinaiticus and they're referencing the Vaticanus. This is why you have the footnote in your Bible. But there are five problems with this. First, a vast majority of church fathers that predate both the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus validate that these verses were included before these two Greek manuscripts were written. So we have a mountain of early church fathers directly quoting from these 12 verses in question, predating the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, Justin Martyr. Second century referenced these verses. Tatian referenced these verses. Irenaeus, who died in 220, uh, 202 AD, he alluded to the verses in both Greek and Latin. In his book Against Heresies, he wrote that also towards the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark, he quotes, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up to heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God. He actually quotes a passage. Tertullian, 220 AD, Reference the verses in his writings on the resurrection of the flesh and a treatise on the soul. Cyprin, who died in 258 AD, alluded to verses 17 and 18 in his dissertation, the Seventh Council of Carthage. Eusebius of Caesarea, 339 AD. He affirmed that the verses were actually excluded from some Greek manuscripts, but then he goes on in some of his writings to address a controversy of the time between Matthew 28, verse 1, and Mark 16, verse 9, demonstrating a recognition that the verses existed in other writings. In his landmark revision of the old Latin translate, the Vulgate, Jerome, 420 AD, specifically chose to include these verses in Mark while deciding to exclude others that lack sufficient manuscriptal verification. We have in our possession, in our possession, actual writings, copies, dating from the second century and third century, seven witnesses that affirm before the Vaticanus or the Sinaiticus were ever written that Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 were included in the Bible. One scholar wrote this, all told, the cumulative external evidence that documents the genuineness of verses 9 through 20 from Greek manuscripts, citations, and ancient versions is expansive, ancient, diversified, and unsurpassed. Secondly, Though the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus omit these verses, 
There is a third Greek text, the Alexandrinus, which rivals these two in both age and reliability, actually includes the verses. So when you read in your footnote that the two oldest Greek manuscripts include, they don't include that the third does, which to me is, is very misleading. Thirdly, the Viticanus and the Sinaiticus, we put them up as being really reliable. The two most reliable texts that we have. They're actually very unreliable. You know, the case can be made that the reason these two copies the Viticanus, the Sinaiticus, dating 350, 370 AD, that the reason we have them in our possession today is because they weren't actually worth reading. Like the, the Viticanus was discovered in the Vatican in the 15th century. No one had been reading it for almost 800 years. No one cared. It, it wasn't considered to be from those uh, contemporaries worth its weight. It's interesting that aside from these 12 verses in Mark 16, that the following portions of Scripture are also excluded from the Viticanus, right? This most reliable Greek manuscript doesn't include Genesis chapter 1 through 46, Psalms 106 through 138, Matthew 16, 2 and 3, all of the pastoral epistles, and everything after Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And yet we uphold that as being the most reliable Greek manuscript we have in our possession. The Sinaiticus was actually found in 1844 on the Mount of Olives at St. Catherine's Monastery. The manuscript from the monk's perspective was so bad, so unreliable, they were actually going to burn it for heat. One scholar comments that the major characteristic of this manuscript is that it is a literary mess. There are mistakes, erasures, sentences written on top of other sentences, plus many words that are omitted. It contains nearly all the New Testament, but also includes the books of the Apocrypha, plus two other books the Shepherd of Hermes, and the Epistle of Barnabas. Every page in the Sinaiticus contains corrections and revisions by at least 10 different people being made as late as the 6th or 7th century AD, with so many revisions and corrections done that the text is totally worthless. So when you read in your footnote that we have these two most reliable Greek manuscripts, the Viticanus, the Sinaiticus, they're actually unreliable. They don't jive. You can even make the case, and this is what's very interesting about the Viticanus, that as he was writing it, and I won't bore you with all the, the details, but as he's transcribing Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, that he actually leaves a place in the text blank for the last 12 verses of Mark 16, leading many scholars to actually believe that the author of the Viticanus and desired to include the 12 verses, but just never get around to it. Fits with the fact that he also didn't get around to the first 46 chapters of Genesis. So it's difficult uh, to build this case. Fourth, the Viticanus and the Sinaiticus, in addition to being unreliable, they, 
they very rarely agree with each other. And you would think that that's a problem, especially if you're using the science of textual criticism, right? There are 3,000 places that these two texts disagree, and the Gospels alone. 3,000. I'll read you a quote. The Gospels alone, the Decanus is found to omit at least 2,877 words, to add 536, to substitute 935, to transpose 2,098, to modify 1,132 in all, 7578. The corresponding figures for Sinaiticus being 3455 omitted, 839 added, 1114 substituted, 2299 transposed, 1265 modified in all, 8972. And be it remembered that the omissions, additions, substitutions, transpositions, and modifications are by no means the same in both texts. Summarizes it this way. It is, in fact, easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two texts differ from one another than finding two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. And we look at these as being our two most important Greek texts. Fifth, if you remove the Viticanus and the Sinaiticus, the majority, the vast majority of Greek manuscripts that we have parchment fragments, etc., actually include these verses. One scholar concedes, one skeptical scholar, by the way, that it is true that the longer ending of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, is found in, note, 99% of the Greek manuscripts, as well as the rest of tradition, enjoying over a period of centuries practically an official ecclesiastical sanction as a genuine part of the Gospel of Mark. That's a mouthful, I agree. Such long-standing and widespread acceptance cannot be treated lightly or dismissed easily. It is at least possible, and I'm glad he concedes, that the prevalence of manuscript support for the verses is due to their genuineness. These verses are included in the text of almost every copy of the Bible from the second century onward. In all manuscripts, versions, and authorities with the exception of the Viticanus and Sinaiticus. The other argument, so there's the external evidence. We have these two copies of the, the Greek Bible that exclude them, so we should exclude them. The second reason is the internal evidence. You see, skeptics will point out that the vocabulary that's used in these 12 verses, it kind of indicates a, a, a real stark difference from everything else we've seen previously in the gospel that there are in these 12 verses many non-Markian words, phrases, not to mention that the connection seems to be awkward, that that when you get to verse 9, the last 12 verses, that it seems to be an awkward transition from the earlier part. And so because, well, there's these other words, it had to have been written by someone other than Mark. That's the argument. Textual scholar Bruce Metzerg, he insists that the presence of, note, 17 non-Markian word or words used in a non-Markian sense prove that these verses were added to the text by somebody other than Mark. Now, there are three problems with this position. First, if you examine the 12 verses that precede 
Mark 16, verse 9. The 12 verses that we've already looked at. By which their genuineness is not in question. So you take the last 12 verses. You will discover an identical number of words and phrases that were not used by Mark. 17. So wait a second. So you're going to build the argument that it had to have been added by someone else, these last 12 verses, because there are 17 non-Markian words used. When the previous 12 verses also include 17 non-Markian words, and yet those verses aren't in question. No one, no one doubts them. That seems hypocritical and ungenuine. As a matter of fact, you can also note that if you apply a similar test to the last 12 verses of Luke, Again, verses whose genuineness is not in question. You'll find nine words that are not used by Luke anywhere else in his book, four of which are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. One scholar concludes that indeed the methodology that seeks to determine the genuineness of a text on the basis of new or unusual word use is concocted, artificial, unscholarly, nonsensical, pretentious, and clearly a discredited benchmark. Two. A simple reading of the verses doesn't indicate a dramatic shift in subject matter. And look at the chapter. After pausing to relate specific details of the tomb that involve three women, verses 2 through 8, what does Mark do in verse 9? He actually returns to the subject that he had introduced in verse 1, reiterating Mary Magdalene's name for reason that Jesus would appear to her first. Not to mention, like just because there's a dramatic shift in subject matter, is that actually uncharacteristic to the gospel of Mark? I mean, we've been studying it for about a year and a half now. Mark's shooting from the hip, man. He's flying through things. He's jumping all over the place. He's always dramatically shifting from one subject matter to another. That's his style. Not to mention, it's kind of the style of all of the gospel writers, Matthew's account reports a Jewish conspiracy of the bribing of the guards to say that the disciples stole the body, only to then shift abruptly to 11 disciples receiving a great commission. Luke has two abrupt shifts in his final chapter. He reports the visit of Jesus, uh, the, the visit of the women at the tomb, before suddenly shifting to Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to then shift dramatically back to the disciples there in the upper room, Jesus appearing to them. I mean, jumping back and forth is not uncommon. Third reason that this isn't trustworthy is that if it's true that Mark's gospel ended at verse 8, then you have to explain why Mark would end his gospel abruptly and leaving it with a general impression of being incomplete. I mean, really, if we end with verse 8, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I mean, like it's kind of this great cliffhanger. Like that doesn't seem logical. It should also be pointed out that all scholars who have examined this subject, all of the scholars on both sides of this argument, concede that the truths presented in these verses are historically authentic since they contain no teaching of significance that is not taught elsewhere in Scripture. 
As we're going to see this morning, you find Christ's post-resurrection appearance to Mary in Luke chapter 8 and John 20. You'll find his appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. You will find his appearance to the 11 apostles in Luke 24 and John 20. You'll find the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, his ascension to heaven, Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, the promise of signs accompanying the apostles' activities, Matthew 28, noted in Hebrews, explained in greater detail by John, demonstrated by the events of the book of Acts. So we don't find anything here new, which would be worthy of being added by someone later. Even the critics recognize the antiquity of these verses. Critic I I mentioned earlier, Bruce Metzerger, professor of the New Testament language and literature at Princeton Theological Seminary, he made this comment. He said, the evident antiquity of the longer ending and its importance in the textual tradition of the gospel places these verses in such close proximity to the original writing of Mark as to make the gap between them virtually indistinguishable. I think it is a grave disservice that they have footnoted your Bible putting these verses into question when if you look at the evidence provided, at least the counter-arguments that critics make, to me, I trust that these verses are part of the original autograph more than ever. So with that being said, verse 9. If that was boring to you, I apologize. But for some of you, that wasn't boring. For some of you, because you've already asked me in the weeks leading up to this morning, are you going to address this controversy? I think it's important. It's important to look at these things, especially when your Bible tells you you shouldn't care about these verses. It's important for us to trust that Scripture is as it was written. Now when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, so it's Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and she told those who had been with him, the disciples. And they mourned and wept. The the, the verb tense here is that they were already mourning and weeping, that they continued to mourn and weep, that these guys are acting like babies. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and had been seen by Mary Magdalene, well, they didn't believe. Our scene of activity. Mary Magdalene. She's there with the ladies making their way to the tomb. She sees it's dark, but she can see up ahead that the stone has been rolled away. Mary leaves from that moment immediately. She runs. She runs back to notify Peter and John that something has happened. Something is awry. Something is amiss. The stone shouldn't be rolled away. This means that Mary Magdalene was not present for the angelic pronouncement that Jesus was not there, but he had indeed risen from the dead. The other ladies present at the tomb, they get this announcement. They leave to tell the disciples, of which Peter and John are already on their way. As they're leaving, these women encounter the resurrected Christ on their own, after Mary Magdalene, you should note, if you're trying to establish a timeline. Peter, John, They arrive to the empty tomb. Now, these two men, they end up leaving to rendezvous with the other disciples. When we pick up things in John chapter 20, 
verse 11. Let me read you John's account of what's taking place here with Mary. We're told, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Peter and John have left. She stooped down and she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. She's distraught, she's upset. Now when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. She did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So Mary, supposing him to be a gardener, said to him, sir, if if you've taken his body away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him from, from you. And Jesus said to her, Mary. He uses her name, Mary. She turned and she said to him, Rabboni which is translator, teacher. It's it's a personal term of endearment. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, which indicates that she turns, she's having this conversation. She doesn't recognize it's Jesus. She's distraught, she's in tears, mascara's running everywhere. You know, it's, it's just a nightmare of a fashion statement right now for Mary, but she doesn't care. She just, she's just, she wants to know where the body is. She didn't get a chance to say her last respects. She encounters this gardener, repeats the same question that the angels had asked. And it's only when Jesus uses her name that not only does she declare Rabboni, but she grabs hold of him. Like she clings to him. And Jesus, I love this. He has to say, yo, Mary, do not cling to me. For I have to ascend to my father, (laughs) but go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things. I love it, Mary clinging to Jesus and Jesus is like, you gotta let go, hon, because I gotta ascend and this is not gonna work out. Like this is not a very good dynamic. I'd hate to just disappear, right? I mean, that would be awkward. So you gotta let go, gotta back up, go tell the boys, Exactly the same thing that I had already told the other women. Sadly, according to Mark, that in response to now the women's testimony, Mary, the mother, Salome, some of the other women that they had encountered the Christ, we were told that they didn't believe. Mary Magdalene now comes and provides this testimony. And we're told that when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by Mary, they didn't believe her either. All the great apostles, men full of faith, Peter the Pope, refusing to believe. The eyewitnesses are now mounting. We're told in verse 12, and after that, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and they told it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Now, it seems as though that Mark is providing us a flyby account of what Luke provides in more detail, chapter 24. We won't read it, but the the story of these two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem, they're on the way to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile walk, 
as they're making their way, they're discussing the things that have happened about Jesus' crucifixion, about the claim of resurrection. They had been present to hear about that early in the morning. A stranger catches up with them. They're walking together. We know the stranger to be Jesus. And we're told that Jesus is asking, well, why are you guys so bummed out? And so they begin to explain. And in response, Jesus from scripture begins to explain to them how all these things had to have happened. We're told that as Jesus is teaching them the word, unaware that it's Jesus, that in their hearts, they're burning. Like it's, it's igniting a fire within them. And, and then Jesus is like, hey, you guys chill for the night. I'm moving on. And they're like, eat with us. And it was only when Jesus broke the bread that they saw the scars. You, you wouldn't find too many people with the scars of a crucifixion. You'd never really survived that enough to get up and walk around. So it was unique, and they recognized that it was Jesus. And then, boom, Jesus disappears. They return back to Jerusalem. They give this account. But once again, after hearing the testimony of the women, then Mary, now these disciples, were told that, that they didn't believe them either. Verse 14, and then later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, before we look at this particular verse, the phrase, later Jesus appeared to the 11, it's important. It's important for our understanding of what takes place when Jesus appears. John chapter 20, I'll read it for you. Verse 19 gives us some important information. We're told that then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so later on the resurrection day, when the doors were shut, the upper room where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, indicating that when Jesus first appears on the resurrection day to the disciples, that there are only 10 of the apostles present. Thomas is not there. We're told that the other disciples therefore said to Thomas, which you see in the Lord, and he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, put my finger in the print of the nails, and my hand into his side, I will not believe. So there's this whole exchange. Jesus appearing on resurrection day, after appearing to Mary, the, the women, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, in the evening, he appears to the ten. Thomas is not present. But John then tells us that after eight days, his disciples were again inside. This time, Thomas was with them, indicating that this is the first time that all eleven were present very likely coinciding with Mark's account here because Mark tells us that the 11 were there, that Jesus came, the doors being shut, he stood in the midst, he said, peace be to you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. 
Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I kind of feel bad for Thomas. Because Thomas gets a bad rap in the whole gig. Like we know him for all of history as doubting Thomas. How would you like to be known as being a doubter for all of humanity? You know, you know what I mean? Like Thomas wants that kind of a sponge from his record. Like that's really unfair. Like the other guys were just as much like why don't we why don't we call Peter denying Peter? Like why do I get doubting Thomas? Like why am I stuck with that name? Yeah, I feel bad for him. Because the reality is though he kind of gets singled out as being the reason for Jesus's rebuke, according to John in particular. But Mark tells us, look again, Mark tells us in verse 14 that Jesus, yes, he rebuked Thomas. He addressed Thomas, but he rebuked, note, their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus's rebuke is not just for doubting Thomas. It's for the doubting rest of the lot. They were all doubters. I want to break down kind of this verse for a moment. First, we're told that, that Jesus rebuked. It's an interesting word. In the Greek, it means literally to cast in one's teeth. It's kind of a slang term that, that we would use to say like, Jesus chewed him out. The resurrected Jesus. Ta-da! And then he chews them out. Like, you know, we get in our mind, like the resurrected Jesus being all cute and cuddly. But I think when the hammer needs to get dropped, we see the resurrected Jesus dropping the hammer. Like, yes, he will deal with Peter later on and, and the love, do you love me, Peter? And, and this whole gig of restoration. But when Jesus needs to rebuke us, he rebukes us. When Jesus needs to chew us out, he will chew us out. I can't tell you how often in a counseling session, I'll say the truth to someone. I'll give it to them as is. And the response is, well, that's not really being like Jesus. No, it's being just like Jesus. Jesus chewed them out. Why? Because of their unbelief. This word unbelief is unfaithfulness. It literally means their weakness of faith and their hardness of heart, their calloused heart. Now the question we should consider is why and over what did Jesus deem their faith weak and their hearts hardened? Well, the answer is we're told that they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. On three occasions, Thomas being the fourth, these men, the apostles, had been provided personal accounts from friends that they loved, that they trusted, that they cared about, that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. And yet on each of these occasions, Mark has told us, right, that what happened? They refused to believe reliable, trustworthy eyewitness testimony. Jesus rebuked these men because, well, they were setting a poor example for all of Christianity that would come after them. 
Jesus, he nails down the point when he said to Thomas, it's because you've seen me that you have believed. Like it took seeing me and putting your grimy little fingers in my side and my hands for you to believe. But blessed are those. Literally like more blessed, blessed upon blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe the evidence. So Jesus said to them, go into the world, to all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This exchange we know traditionally as the Great Commission. It's included in Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts chapter 1. Mark's account, it begins simply as go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Please note that the subject of this sentence is open-ended. Like, who's he telling to go? Is it just the apostles? I don't think so. Because if, if it were just the apostles to go, then he would have said that. You see, he leaves it open-ended for a reason because, truthfully, it's an understood you. Jesus is saying, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The disciples present in all generations since. Now, sadly, I think that this has been twisted a little bit to mean or at least to imply, or to put some like weird pressure, that if we're really Christian, then we will sell everything we have, and we will move to Somalia, or Mozambique, or fill in the blank. Like if we're, like that somehow, if we go overseas, some remote, weird place, if I'm going anywhere, it's Fiji, but if like that we're to go, like that real Christians, really spiritual people, they take this and they go out into the world. I think that that's a little bit of a misinterpretation of what's being stated. Now, if the Lord calls you specifically to go, then you need to go. And as a church, we'll support you and encourage you and facilitate whatever that is that the Lord's putting on your heart and your mind. If you're called to go, then go. I'm not. <laughs> like I've been called to Winder, not Africa. There's certain, I like air conditioning, refrigeration, antibiotics. It's a benefit. The word go is the Greek word polio, which means to lead over to transfer or to order one's life, it can mean to go, but it can also mean to order one's life. And, and then he says, and preach. When we think of preaching, we're like, well, I, can't, I can't preach, I can't do what Zach does. Well, that's not the word. The word that doesn't mean that you need to like go to work, get everyone's attention, stand up on the park bench, preach a sermon. Like, that's not the idea. The word preach, it literally means just to herald or to proclaim. So go and preach the gospel, or literally, 
the good tidings that salvation can be found in Christ's work on the cross, and we just should do that to every creature, or literally to the whole of creation. So let me reconstruct what I think is being said here. Jesus is telling you, and he's telling me, to transfer into the world and throughout the whole of creation an ordered life that proclaims, that heralds, that communicates, that demonstrates the work of salvation through Jesus. You know, we're called to be witnesses. The question is, is are you a good one or a bad one? We're all called to go into the world, wherever we are, to order our lives, to demonstrate the gospel, to herald the gospel through the way that we live. Not necessarily the words that we say, but the way we've ordered our life, that our life represents the good news. And why are we to do this? So that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now the emphasis of Jesus' statement here is that the result of our lives fulfilling the Great Commission is for people to believe and be saved as opposed to not believing and facing condemnation. Now, there are those in reading this verse who claim that baptism, according to Mark, is an essential work for salvation. Believe and be baptized. And though I would submit that baptism is an essential work of salvation, I disagree that it's essential for salvation. If baptism, a work, was essential to be saved, then this flies in the notion, it contradicts the idea that salvation is a matter of faith, not works. And not to mention, how, how do you really explain then why Paul's like, hey man, I'm preaching the gospel so people can be saved. I'll let you other people baptize. Like, like Paul seems to like minimize the role of baptism even in his own ministry while it's still being important. There are examples of people who we know are saved, thief on the cross, without experiencing baptism. It's not as though Jesus there on the cross is like, Today you will be with me in paradise, but we got to figure out a way to get ourselves off this cross and into that pond and back up on this cross so you can be baptized and saved. That's not necessarily true. But I do think that the greatest reason why we can discredit or at least dismiss this notion from this verse is that I don't think the verse substantiates the concept. The word and, it's kind of the essential word here. Believe and be baptized. And. It's the Greek conjunction kaya, which according to Vines can mean even, even as, or even so. Let me read you a little bit more of what Vine says about this word. As a conjunction, it is usually a mere connective term, meaning next in order of. It frequently indicates an ascensive or climatic use signifying that the thing that is added is out of the ordinary and produces either a climax or an anticlimax, the determination of which is totally dependent upon the context. Which means, since the emphasis of the statement is what? Belief versus unbelief, it seems likely that and is baptized is of lesser importance to belief 
because you would have a hard time making the argument that it's of greater importance than belief when it comes to salvation, which means, I'll go back to it, being baptized is an essential work of being saved. It's declaring to the world. It's, it's signifying to the world that you're a follower of Jesus. It's going on the record. It's, it's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. You're letting the world know, which is why we do it publicly, often at Fort Yargo, so that people can see, so that you can declare to the world that I am a follower of Jesus. You should do that if you're a Christian, but it's not essential for salvation. Well, we're told, and these signs will follow those who believe, or literally will distinguish those who believe that in my name they will cast out demons and they will speak new tongues and they will take up serpents. At this point, Larry's going to bring the snakes up front. And we're just kidding. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, Jesus is clear. We should be honest that supernatural gifts and supernatural protection, the thing that he's listing out here, will follow those who carry the gospel into the world. And while it's clear that many of these things are demonstrated or find fulfillment in the book of Acts, I think it's unbiblical to limit them to simply existing in the apostolic church. If in context... The Great Commission was for all saints, then the signs to follow are equally applicable. That said, it's inappropriate for some to say that these signs were meant to demonstrate or to confirm or to validate one's faith. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that these signs, these works, and this protection will follow those who go out into the world. He's not saying that it will validate the faith of those going out into the world. David Guzik, he just summarizes it. He says it this way. He says, Jesus never intended that drinking poison or handling snakes was to be a specific test or measure of faith. And that's good news because I'm not handling snakes and I'm not drinking poison. So then, verse 19, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Three final observations before we close out the gospel of Mark. It's kind of a balancing act because some of the subject matter that we're looking at here in the last few verses, we're going to get to in a bit more in-depth manner in Acts chapter 1, which is where we're going next. So it's, it's a little difficult of trying to effectively address the close of a book we've spent so much time with, but at the same time leaving room for Acts 1 so we're not getting redundant. But three things we have to note. First, it was essential for Jesus to ascend into heaven. First, human DNA sat down at the right hand of God, the right hand indicating a place of honor or a place of approval. It signified 
God accepting Jesus' work of redemption for the rest of mankind. But you know, it was also essential for Jesus to ascend because imagine the limitations of Jesus still being here. It would be difficult for him to intercede on our behalf in the throne room of heaven as our high priest. It would be difficult for you to have a personal relationship with him. You'd have to travel to Jerusalem and wait in a really long line so that you could get up and have a quick five-second handshake with Jesus. I mean, the likelihood of Jesus being able to come and preach at Little Calvary 316 might happen once every thousand years. And after that, puts every pastor out of business because who wants to listen to me when you could have listened to Jesus? I'm just saying Jesus had to ascend for a lot of fascinating reasons. The limitations of him being here in bodily form were obvious. Secondly, note that the Lord was working with them. You know, the work of the church, as we're going to see, it's not our work. It's not your work. You're not sent out to do work alone but it's actually the Lord's work through you. That it was the Lord working with them. It's a beautiful co-op. And then finally, that miracles here, that he was confirming the word through the accompanying signs. That these miracles, no doubt the supernatural works he's already mentioned here, are designed to produce faith? No, to confirm the word. And why? Because as I think we've all learned over the last year and a half, the Bible's pretty, pretty correct when it says that our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That it's God's word that produces real faith. It's not seeing signs. The example that Mark has provided us, it's stark, isn't it? Like place that phrase in context to what he's, even seeing or or connecting to people had visually seen Jesus resurrect from the dead, they they still didn't believe. Like there was a, a difficult in their belief. For us, we have the word. And when we study the word, our faith, it deepens and it grows. And the byproduct is that it helps us order our lives so that we can effectively go and effectively communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Mark. It's a cool book. Indeed, actions really do speak much louder than words. So, Father.